been 2,000 years, give or take, since Jesus was killed, resurrected, and the church was birthed. And it's crazy that now the Lord has just preserved his church to the extent that now we are sitting here and this group of people he has ordained to be sitting in this room singing his praises together. That's just amazing to me. And it's such an encouragement. And I love, I just love it. So it's really good to hear your guys' voices join together. Um, it's beautiful. I just want to start with a question uh, that I want you to answer to each other. Okay, so this is many groups. And it, it's a short question. But I, I, wanna, I want you guys to hear each other's responses. And then afterward, I'll call out, ask for some of your, uh, your thoughts. But when you hear the word holy, what comes to mind? Image. Okay. Discuss with your group. When the word holy is spoken, what do you picture? Go for it. Are we good to get this? Elliot, can I get this? All right, I'm going to call everybody back. I love how, uh, how vibrant the conversation was. All right, a couple hands, people who want to share what, they, uh, what came to mind with the word holy, Andre. Set apart. Set apart. That's like way too good, man. What's the, uh, what's the image, if it's an image as opposed to a definition? Like last, okay, all right, <laughs> that's very, that's very good, I'm glad, I'm glad that you got the, that's correct. Anybody else, any other less, um, less great answers? Yeah. What's that? Oh, nice. Okay, I didn't expect that. But uh, an image of Christ enthroned over the whole world. Basically, and there was something before that I didn't quite catch, but okay, I got that basic image. That's good. Let's go here and then there. Yeah. Jesus. Hey, that's great. What, what comes to mind? Is it the classic, you know, like? Oh, nice. Yeah. Let the children come to me. Cool. Holy. So is the Swiss cheese simply because it has holes in it? Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, I like it. That's interesting. Um, but godly was the first thing, um, which is also good. What did you guys have up here? I'm curious. Worship band? Holy worship band with their Swiss cheese. That's what they were picturing. No. Um, well, I don't know how many of you would resonate with this image, but I think sometimes I'm tempted to think of holiness like this this was an image that popped up on Google when I Googled Puritan. 
okay? Because I think sometimes when, I, when we think of holiness when it, as an attribute that we should have, we kind of picture this like that. I don't know, there's a bonnet, and there's, she's holding flowers, and she's reading her Bible. Of course she is. And, uh, and that's probably all she does all day long. She sits, and she reads her Bible, and she's very holy. And I think sometimes we can have this, the word that came to mind is kind of interesting, but I'm, I'm going to use it. Kind of a neutered view of holiness. All right, I don't want to be crude, but it's like this idea that we, we just take the, the guts out of it, and it becomes just kind of this, this, this pretty uh, or uh, external version of, you know, someone who does all the right stuff, who looks very pious on the outside, okay? That's, that's a holy person. And uh, they go to church a lot, and they read their Bible a lot, and when you talk to them, they seem like distant. I don't know, in my mind, that could, that, that could describe something of, of a person that might think of themselves maybe as holy. And that's just so different than what I think we should think of with holiness. And I'm glad that no one actually said that. That's a good sign. That means that you guys actually are, are already on the right lines, and maybe you're ahead of me. Um, but the image that actually came to mind after I'd studied this week was the image of fire. That was what came to mind with holiness. And I was actually reading a book by R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God, and it has fire on the front. I think it's appropriate. A little story for you. This week we're doing uh, yard work, my family and I. It was wonderful. It was like one of those weird days that you look back on and you're like, this, we literally have said to each other, this was one of the best days in the last like two months. And all it was was our family being together, yard work raking leaves. It was like the best thing in the world, okay? So things change when you get older, and you start to just really love the simple things in life and the family time. So you can look forward to that. Um, but okay, we have this stump in the backyard, and I decided it was time to move our fire pit from like 10 feet from the house to the stump. And I thought, well, what a great way to get rid of the stump. You just burn it down. So it was kind of hollow in the middle, and we had also just chopped down another tree. So I put that tree's trunk on top of that trunk, and then I was like, Thomas, come here. And we tried to, to light a fire inside of it with like leaves and little twigs, which usually I can do. For whatever reason, it didn't work, okay? So I was like, I got this. I'm such a cool dad. I'm going to go and get the gasoline, okay? So I went and got the gasoline. <laughs> and I doused that thing with gasoline. Um, pretty good. And Kate was there with, my, with our two kids, and she like, she's getting nervous. I'm not nervous yet. She's getting nervous. I'm like, I've, I've done this before. I saw my dad do it. This is totally normal, Okay. Just douse it in gasoline. Yeah, stand. Yeah, you can stand back. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. Now, as I think back, my dad, when he did this, definitely stood like five feet away, lit a match, and threw it. Okay? I, for some reason, I think I was picturing just a different, something different, like, li like lighting fluid, lighter fluid or something. Because I, so I just lit the match, and I just leaned down and put it on it. <laughs> and as, as, as some of you are, are thinking, there was a fireball. That engulfed me for a split second, and it was it was somewhat terrifying because like I was I was trying to be so casual and I was legitimately unconcerned. I was like, "This is gonna be fine. Yeah, it's gonna light pretty fast. I'll step back." And it was just like, boom! And I was like, "Oh, okay." And I, I just have this memory of seeing it come up and go and literally surround my legs. And I was like, "Okay, that's not, that wasn't supposed to happen." So that fire burned for the next hour at a rate that scared me and Kate, okay? It, uh, we were, I was pretty close to it. I, I spent the next, like, 15 minutes just moving piles of leaves further away 
from this pillar of fire. And just, w- and then when, the, when the wind would kick up, I'd be like, oh no, this is terrible. Kate dragged the hose around the house. It didn't get close enough. So it was literally only if the fire started like coming toward our house that she'd be able to spray it. And I was looking at like, we don't even have a bucket of water out here. Like I have nothing. I, was, I should have a fire extinguisher. Um, that's what came to mind with, with this idea of holy, because I, and that is the definition of playing with fire, right? But when, when, when we think of the, the holiness of God, I think we can, we can approach him so casually when we ought to have a holy fear of God and a reverence for him. And sometimes you can do with God what I did with that gasoline and just think, oh yeah, no big deal. I don't know if you know that story in the Bible, Old Testament. I think their names were Nadab and Abihu. You guys know this story? They offered the wrong sacrifice. They weren't, they weren't concerned with Levitical law. They, weren't, they were not following the rules that God had set forth. And they were trying to offer a sacrifice. And what did God do? He literally consumed them with fire. They just, he, he killed them on the spot. Because they were just approaching him so casually. And I think we can, in this dispensation of grace, we can think, oh, we can just approach God casually. You know, that's, we're all about casual. I'm wearing a t-shirt, all right? Well, the reason that people wear suits on Sunday mornings is actually not to, like, scare away all of our generation. <laughs> it's, it's out of respect and reverence for God, and it's something that I think we might have, we might be at least in danger of losing. And uh, today's text is, I think, it's something that should cause us to shudder and also just to be incredibly excited about what God has invited us into. And so for those of you who are in C groups, you guys did this text. You, you, you walked through it with your groups this last week. And uh, I'm really excited just to walk through it briefly now uh, and point out some stuff. So go to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 13. And I think that what categorizes, or excuse me, not categorizes, I think what summarizes this whole passage is holiness and this call to be holy. I think you could really make an argument for that. I'm going to make an argument for that. And the ESV agrees with me because it gives it a heading called to be holy. And I actually wrestled with this a little bit. So picking it up at verse 13, we have, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What we're going to see here is we're going to see four imperatives. And we're going to walk through each of these and see how they are interconnected, okay? The first imperative, that means command, is set your hope. The second command is be holy. The third command is conduct yourselves with fear. And the um, fourth command, I actually kind of missed it. It is right here, love one another. And I think there is a progression that we can see here. And it's really quite beautiful. I'm actually going to do this. I'm going to mess up my underline just to break it up a little bit. Okay, so the first one, what's going on here? I, I, can't I uh, framed verses 1 through 12 as reasons to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. And when you look back over the first 12 verses in 1 Peter, 
He's, he's talking about this living hope, and he's talking about this imperishable inheritance, and he's talking about an incredible privilege that we have to understand the gospel just at all. And then he gets to verse 13 and says, Therefore, set your hope. And the emphasis falls on fully. So he's saying, don't not partially, but fully set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you. And what I'm going to argue is that this needs explanation. I don't know about you, but I'm like, all right, Peter, how? Right? How, how do I do that? It can feel so non-concrete like okay set my hope how do I how do I do that and I think that the next one is essentially the answer to that so we have this first command set your hope fully and then the second one essentially says okay how do you do that be holy that's how you set your hope fully that's what it looks like to have a hope set fully that's how you know you have your hope fully in what's coming you're going to be holy now. You're going to pursue holiness. He starts verse 14 as, as obedient children. And we can think back that uh, in, the, in the first few verses, he framed salvation as a rebirth. Okay, so he's saying, you have been reborn to this living hope. So now, in this new life, set your hope fully on it. Okay, what does that look like? Okay, well, as a, as a child is obedient, what do they do? What's, that, what's the first steps of this obedient child? And, 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 and that's what Peter's going to go into and say, be holy. Okay? So that's what setting your hope ultimately looks like. Now, we see that there's, there's a, a certain amount of, of preparation needed. Right? So if we go back to verse 13, we have these two participles is what they're called that really describe and set the precedent for setting your hope how okay what, what do I need to do in order to set my hope what do I need to do in preparation and in preparation you have to prepare your minds for action and be sober minded okay I don't know does anyone have the translation in front of them um, girding up the loins of your minds I saw a nod maybe some good old KJV or NKJV so that's what it literally says in the Greek Super fun. Anybody know what girding up your loins means? There's been a, several sermons probably. All right, go for it, Isaac. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For any kind of action, uh, I'm, I'm told through others and through study, you know, they, they would use wear these long robes that were not very good for work or, or running or really any kind of physical activity. And so in order to do anything, that was strenuous, they had to gird, literally bring up these folds and strap them around our, their, their legs so that they could actually move around, okay? And so there's, in that then, I think this translation is good, that means you need to prepare, and, and, but then it specifically says you're girding up the loins of your mind, so preparing your minds for action. I think that's, that's an accurate translation. And I know, uh, I don't know how many of you guys are athletes, but if you're an athlete preparing for action, there's a lot that goes into the preparation for the actual game, right? And that might mean that you, I mean, there's a, I, don't, I guess Luke's not here, but if he doesn't know Luke, he's, he wrestles at NC State, and he's told me, I mean, if you've gotten to know him at all, he's extremely strict on his diet, right? He's constantly preparing for action. He's constantly having to be 
disciplined about what goes into his body. He's constantly be having to be disciplined about his sleep. When I, when I am preparing to do this, I do my best to sleep well the night before, right? I'm preparing my mind for action. It calls for a certain level of preparedness, and, uh, and that's because I think what Peter is also saying is this is a serious thing, and it's going to demand a lot from you. If you're not prepared for it, then, then it's going to clobber you. That you. You need to understand that this is going to demand a ton. So what is it that's going to demand so much? It's this holiness that we're called to. It's going to cost something. The, the word fully, I'm going to use this, this phrase. Send it. You guys familiar with this? <laughs> we, were on a, uh, we were on a retreat with the leadership team, and I was walking with Asher. You remember this, Asher? And uh, Asher was just, I mean, we, we were looking down a very steep hill. And, of course, Asher being Asher is like, do you think you could just, like, I don't know, run down that? And I was like, no. <laughs> and Asher was like, I think I could. But you just have to send it. Right? What does that mean? It means you've got to commit. Right? There's a, I'm horrible at committing uh, when it comes to physical things. There was one time in my life that I was watching people do flips off of something onto like a really soft mat. And I just, instead of committing to the flip, I thought, maybe if I just fall in that direction, <laughs> then, uh, then I'll land well. And I did do a full turn, but then I wasn't ready for the landing. And I like smashed my face and, and, and crunched my teeth in a weird way and chipped a tooth. And it was like super weird. But it was like, I wasn't sending it, right? I wasn't fully committed to it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I think that's what, what, what Peter's saying. Are you, are, you f- are you committed? Like, are you, are you willing to put your weight into it? Are you willing to risk it? Are you willing to risk not, it not working? Like, is there anything on the line? I, I, Peter's saying, if there's nothing on the line, then you are not setting your hope fully. But all of this, I think, is leading into his second point, which is to be, be holy. Be holy. And so he begins, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The first thing I want to point out is that holiness costs you something. There's no way that you're going to be holy without it stripping something off of your life. If, you're, if we're thinking of holiness as the, the fire of God, it's going to burn away a lot of what you think is you. And you have to be willing to let go of that. And that's why we're called so often to put off, put off, put off. And Peter's going to do that. Paul does that in numerous letters. You've got to put off these things so that you can put something else on. You've got to purify yourself so that you are a vessel ready for God's use. And if you don't do that first step, you can't be holy. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. When you look at this word passions, uh, that should point to the fact that this is not going to be easy to let them go. This isn't, you know, your, your former tastes. This isn't your former, you know, uh, whims. It is those things too. But Peter's not just talking about that. He's talking about your passions. The very things that drive you, the very things that you love absolutely most, if those things were primarily rooted in ignorance, that is now a past you. You've been reborn, and it's time for something new. 
But you've got to be willing to let go of those former passions. I like um, how Jesus goes about speaking about this in Matthew 5. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off and throw it away. I often ask when I'm talking to um, especially guys about pornography, the question that I have to ask is, what are you willing to do to be done with it? Are you really serious? If you're serious, then you will give up your phone if that is what it takes, right? And I know this is not just a guy's problem. And so I would just ask you, are, are there things you're holding on to and you're just not, you're just not serious about it? And, and, and so and that question it has to be the first question because I can't, and, and yeah, I, I can't help someone ultimately and, and, and be a, uh, a companion to somebody if they're not willing to do what's actually necessary to cut out the sin in their lives, right? And so I just challenge you, that's, that's just one, but there are so many things that we can hold on to. I like the example of a, of a monkey there's a certain kind of trap that just puts something, you know, it's something like a hollowed out, something hollowed out, and it has a hole just big enough for the monkey's hand to go in, right? So the hand can go in, and it grabs whatever it wants, but then the thing that it wants, it, it can't bring out through that hole, right? So it's trapped. Now, if it just let go of that thing, then it would be free. It could, it could get away. But it's so attached to that thing, it wants it so bad that literally people can just catch w these wild monkeys by, by this trap, or so I'm told. I think that's a valid illustration sometimes of how we deal with our sin. So, it's going to cost us something. And the next thing I want to point out is that holiness is defined by God. And this is where we start to get into more of a definition of, of holiness. I struggled with this. When I, when I try to think about what, what is holiness when it comes to God's holiness? Because we have to recognize that when we talk about God's holiness and our holiness, they are distinct. We will never be holy in a certain sense that God is holy, and yet we are called to be holy like him in some sense. That's clear right here. And so, um, actually, I thought it was really, well, I'll get to that in a moment, actually. Oftentimes, we, we might boil down holiness to purity. I think oftentimes that's what we think of. We, you know, we might take a cursory look at the Levitical law or something like that in the Old Testament and think, okay, holiness means it's, it's pure, it's undefiled, right? There's nothing bad in it. And that's what it means to be holy. And in, in a lot of senses, that's true. That does describe holiness. It just doesn't, it's just not the full picture of holiness. And when it comes to God's holiness, at the root of that idea is this, this consecration, this separation, this differentness. But I, I think that a helpful term is just other. It's the otherness of God. It's the thing that sets him apart from anything else that he has created. Any, any created thing is not holy until God says it's holy because God is the thing that is preeminently holy, other, different, transcendent. I like, I'm going to give you an illustration of this. Um, 
R.C. Sproul, uh, well, he wrote a helpful book, but this is a quote by him, okay? As mortal creatures, we are exposed to all sorts of fears. We are anxious people given to phobias. Some people are afraid of cats, others of snakes, still others of crowded places or lofty heights. These phobias gnaw at us and disturb our inner peace. There's a special kind of phobia from which we all suffer. It's called xenophobia. Xenophobia is a fear and sometimes hatred of strangers or foreigners or of anything that is strange or foreign. God is the ultimate object of our xenophobia. He is the ultimate stranger. He's the ultimate foreigner. He is holy, and we are not. This, is, this aspect of, of God's holiness is why when Isaiah has a vision of God, he says, woe is me, I am what? Yeah, unmade, undone. Literally, I am disintegrating. That's what happens to a sinner, a sinful creature, when they encounter God. What does Peter do? I mentioned this. Actually, I'm going to take you there. I want you guys to turn there, actually. This is Luke 5. Uh, turn to Luke 5, verse 1. This is a, one of the accounts of how Jesus called Peter, and it gets into more of the detail. I actually referenced this, I think, in our, our first time as an introduction to First Peter, but I think it's worth our time thinking about Peter's experience of the holiness of Jesus. So whoever said Jesus is absolutely right. But there's, a, there's an element of fear, and we're going to get to that next, but this otherness, this recognition that you are in the presence of divine and that you are not safe. I like C.S. Lewis. It's not a tame lion, right? So here's, here's Luke 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, this is Jesus, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that is Peter, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Now I just want you to pause right there for a minute for a second look up what he has just said I mean, if we can put ourselves into Peter's shoes they literally just spent all night fishing they got absolutely nothing and they have just finished cleaning their nets okay and so now this teacher has just borrowed his boat for the day and I, I, I liked it's kind of a creative we don't know exactly how this happened but it seems like Peter's more or less grumbling here because really his response should have been Okay, like if he understood who Jesus was, really, he wouldn't have had to tell Jesus, look, we just tried all night, it's not going to work, but because you say, okay, we'll do it. And you can almost just see him grumbling a little bit as they, as they send out, they get their nets dirty again, and this teacher thinks he knows it all, even about their business, their fishing business. And then verse 6 happens, when they had done this, that is, they let down their nets where Jesus said, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Okay, now picture that. Basically, they put out the net one time, and it's like every fish in the lake wants to get into that net at the same time. Okay? And now, literally, the, the nets are breaking with this massive catch of fish. The next thing that, that, that happens, they, they signal to their partners in the other boat to come help them. 
and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Put yourself in that boat for a second. I mean, A, that's disgusting, right? <laughs> like, there's fish flopping everywhere, but it's to the point that the boats are sinking. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, what do you say? Did he say, wow, you're amazing. You should help us fish all the time. <laughs> no. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He, something about that encounter struck fear in Peter's heart. Because he, he recognized that he was with something different. He was with something powerful, something like, like me with that fire, it was something that he could not control or contain. And that is a piece, I think, of the holiness of God. It's this otherness that inspires reverent fear. And there's two kinds of fear. That we're going we're to talk about that. I'm not sure if this was the exact right kind of fear for Peter. But it does say that Jesus said to, said to him, to Simon in, in verse 10, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And then he follows. He says, okay. And he starts following Jesus. This isn't the only account of, <laughs> I, I also like the one where Jesus calms a storm and the disciples are more afraid after the fact. They're about to die and they were more afraid after they saw Jesus command waves and they just went flat. He's holy. So that's something of the, of the holiness of God. But with, with that idea of this, his otherness, there is also his, his purity. And so that is, a, I would say, within this definition of holy. And that is the primary thing that gets, uh, as you say, transferred to us. But it is through a process of consecration. And so I think, who was it? Andre said, to be set apart, right? And that's, that's right. It's, a, it's to take something, and to set it aside and say this is for special, a special purpose, a special use, okay? So God, this other one, as we learn about who he is, he says, okay, now I want to use you for a special purpose. You are mine. You are holy. So in that, in that sense, the chosenness, our, our chosenness is our holiness. That's why we can be described as saints, does that mean that we are morally pure? No. It means that we have been chosen. And within that, there's a promise that we will become pure. And an expectation. So we have been set aside by God. And the implication of that is that we are going to keep ourselves for his purposes. And that means that we can't just, uh, imp uh, what's, what's the word? Impurify ourselves, <laughs> make ourselves impure, because then we're going to be no use to him. Holy. So God's holy. Back to the text here in First Peter, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So it has something to do with how we live. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That is a phrase that rings multiple times through the book of Leviticus. You shall be holy for I am holy. And there's a lot of implications there that I probably should go into. 
but we have to keep on moving. I'll just make this extra note, okay? Two things. Number one, this be holy is for every Christian. That is an inescapable command. Holiness is not for the spiritual elite. It's not for pastors only. It's for all of you. Um, it's not optional. So if you're a Christian, then you are pursuing holiness. And secondly, it's going to touch every aspect of your life. Be holy in all, all your conduct. In everything that you do, it's going to seep into every aspect. I like the word uh, for for all of this, all of your conduct, the, the word is anastrophe, and that it means as you, as you go about, in everything that you do, be holy. And, and anastrophe has this, it's like kind of an idea of, of being turned over or going back and forth. And so I don't know, it's almost like zooming out from the world and looking at your life, and you are just kind of doing like a little ant. You're doing your thing, right? And the ins and the outs, the, the paths, and, the, and when you, then you lie down and you sleep, and then you get up and you have breakfast, and then you go to school, and then you do this, and you do this. And it's kind of tracing this line everywhere, and it's turning this way and that across the face of the earth. That's your life. And God is saying through Peter, you must be holy in every part of that turning around. So there's no, there's no aspect of your life that is excluded from that. So just to get as practical as we can, what are the aspects of your life that you kind of feel like, eh, I haven't thought of that as needing to be holy, right? Um, an easy one, going for the easy, easy bait, your phone. Do you think of the, your time on your phone? Could you describe the time on your phone as holy? Would you describe it that way? It's consecrated to God. It's set apart for special use. Um, what about the time watching shows? Let's say TV, but no one watches TV, right? Watching whatever it is that you watch. Do you, do you consider that time too as being under this command to be holy? Or, um, I mean, you could, you could obviously extend that to anything. Your, the, your time at the gym, um, what you choose to eat or not eat. Be holy. Be holy in what? All your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So then we move from here. This, this really incredible command that Peter is bringing back from the Old Testament. And he's saying this is, still, this is still accurate to you. God wanted to use Israel in the Old Testament. That was his chosen nation to declare his praises to all the nations. And now, although I believe that he will still fulfill every promise he ever made to Israel... God has switched, in a sense. He's not using Israel right now. He's using the church. And we are now meant to fulfill this call to holiness. And next week, really, is, is incredible. As you guys go through your C groups with the first part of chapter 2, it's going to describe the church with many of the terms that was used of Israel. And, and the point that Peter's making is, now your holiness is meant to be to put God on display to the world. And it's going to be awesome. But we're only at two imperatives, and we have two more. So verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear 
throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So our first imperative was here, set your hope fully. The second imperative was be holy. And now conduct yourselves with fear. And I think we can summarize this as, this whole section as awe is going to guard your holiness. Awe guards holiness. I'm going to keep going back to this example of me in the fire. That experience of the, we'll call it holiness, <laughs> the, un- well, I'm not going to call it holiness, but I have a healthy fear of fire now. And that experience, God used that so that hopefully I don't actually burn my house down, right? I've actually made fun of people. I heard of a guy who, in my neighborhood, I would actually ride my bike by the burned ruins of a house. And the story went that he tried to kill a nest of wasps with a lighter and hairspray on his house, okay? And I so quickly am like, I can't believe what a moron would light his house on fire like that. And then, you know, on Friday I was shaking my head at myself like, God, thank you that I didn't just accidentally burn my or my neighbor's house down, you know, with my casual approach to fire. Well, there's a healthy fear. Uh, when it comes to fear, I, this is a, a concept I think many of you are familiar with, that we're, we're to fear God. And this isn't necessarily uh, the same kind of fear as we might that we were told not to fear, right? In, in, in biblically, in biblically. Biblically speaking, there's a good fear and there's a bad fear. And simply, I, I think this was put well by J.C. Ryle, a holy man or woman will follow after the fear of God. I do not mean the fear of a slave who only works because he is afraid of punishment and would be idle if he did not dread discovery. I mean rather the fear of a child who wishes to live and move as if he was always before his father's face because he loves him. I feel like that just, that that put it well. That's that healthy awe and fear of God that that we are meant to have as his children. And that's going to be different from the fear of God that the demons have. They probably have a better idea than us of God's power. And yet, they don't fear God in in the sense that we're called to fear God as a father. So there's a, there's a healthy awe and, and respect. And if we go back to the text here, that awe and respect is, is really inspired by his holiness. And that's why I'm, I'm arguing that holiness does carry through this whole thing. If you call on him as father, so there it is, father. But how does he characterize this father? He judges impartially. He's holy. And so just because you have called on him as father does not mean that he's going to just turn a blind eye to all of your sin. doesn't mean that he's now unconcerned with what you do, and he says, well, that's my kid. I'm going to punish those that are not my kids, but my kid is good because he's my kid. He does whatever he wants. We've probably seen parents who treat their children like that, and it's awful. No, God, if anything, will be more severe with his children because he disciplines you. He is more concerned with your sin because you actually have a way to not sin. You have the Holy Spirit. So there's this healthy fear inspired by God's holiness that says we 
we need to conduct ourselves in accordance with this holiness. So on the one hand, we just have his judgment and his impartiality. And yet it goes on, and I think this is so interesting, to describe the holiness of God. How? Well, actually with the precious blood that was used to redeem us. This is interesting. He's not going to say, you know, think of hell. Think of how God punishes those in hell in fear. No, he says, think of what it costs to buy you in fear, right? Think of how precious that blood was that bought you. It was more precious than anything on this earth. That is what's going to tell you how valuable your holiness is. If, if, if this is what it took to punish your sin, then there's just so many implications of that. And that's actually what we're, what we're called to focus on as we pursue holiness. It's not a dread of punishment. It's actually we're setting our eyes on the cost of our redemption. Because what that does is it shows us the value of holiness. It just shows us the value of what we're called into and called for. And, and this gets into a, a really important concept, and that is you were saved not just to be saved from, your, from punishment of your sin. You were saved for sanctification. You were saved to become holy. That's why God saved you. That is a part of the gospel. And I think, again, J.C. Rowell has a great quote. This is rather lengthy, but I think it's worth, worth quoting. So he says, we must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. This is why you were saved. And then he has so many quotes. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who, which died for them and rose again. So why did he die for you? So that you can live for him. And to the Ephesians, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Why? That he might sanctify. That's that same root as holy, to make you holy and cleanse it. And to Titus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Does he stop there? No. And purify. Bring to completion unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. In short, to talk of men being saved from the guilt of sin without being at the same time saved from its dominion in their hearts is to contradict the witness of all scripture. Are believers said to be elect? It's through sanctification of the spirit. Are they predestined? It is to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Are they chosen? It's that they may be holy. Are they called? It is with a holy calling. Are they afflicted? It's that they may be partakers of holiness. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. You were saved to be holy. And it's funny, as I thought through this section, it was like, so easy for me for the first bit to just revel in the privilege. Wow, I, I have been saved for this living hope that's kept in heaven. I'm, I've been saved for this imperishable inheritance. Wow, look at the, the, the privileged position I'm in to understand these things, to have the canon of scripture complete before me. But then I was so blind at first to realize the privilege of being holy. And sometimes we can approach holiness like it's, a, like it's something that we don't really want to do. 
right? But we just grudgingly do it. No, it's a privilege. You get to pursue that holy God and, and pursue likeness unto him. You get to imitate him and experience him. When Peter later in Second Peter says, we become partakers of the divine nature. That's thrilling. We, we, get to leave, we have to leave behind so much, yes. But it's not worth comparing to what we get to experience. It's a privilege. And ultimately, it's, it's something that the world is seeking. It was really cool. We have a neighbor who uh, has just been watching us. And Kate's been really wonderful about getting to know her. And she's actually a student uh, at NC State, as it, as it happens. And recently, Kate got to have a conversation with her where she just said, you know, basically, she's, she's noticed. She's actually noticed that something's different about us. That, and she's never met anyone like us. And she, to some degree, she's not ready to say, yeah, I want to I wanna be a Christian. But she's recognizing there's something about you and what you have that is different from anything else. It's so different, and I want it, right? There's a peace there. There's a, a life there. There's a, a holiness there that is, is, is strange, but the more that you get to know it, it's, it's something that you want Kate told another, I, I love Kate's story. So as I was talking to her, she was like, don't forget to tell them that holiness is fun. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, I won't, I won't, I won't forget. And she told this story of, of when she was in college, she was with a group of, of people. They went to, I don't know, something ran a hockey game, I think. Who, who, goes, who goes to hockey, right? Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, hockey's great. <laughs> <laughs> they went to a hockey game, and I'm sorry, I just, I don't know if I've ever been to a hockey game, but that's just on me. Somebody bring me to a hockey game. They went to a hockey game with a group of Christian friends, and they had such a good time. They were just, like, having a ball, okay? And another, a, a guy came up to them afterward, this is a group of guys and girls, and, and a guy came up to them and just said, like, you guys are Christians, aren't you? Like, there's no way you can have so much fun if you weren't believers. Like, there was, you know, you, you didn't need anything but each other and apparently the Holy Spirit because you guys are just having a good time. And that's, that's so descriptive of, of the life of holiness because holiness really, if you think of the grand narrative of Scripture, it's a return to what we were meant to be. It's a return to what you were created for. And so, of course, it's going to be better. Of course, it's going to be real life. So, holiness is not drudgery. It's, it's, a, it's a privilege. There's one more command, and this, I think, perhaps was the one that, that blew my mind the most, all right? So, hold on to your seats, seatbelts, hats. You guys ready? We had set your hope fully. We had be holy, conduct yourselves with fear, and then this last one, love one another. Now, I want you to just note verse 22 leading up to that. How does he say... We are to love one another. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I'm going to pause there. What I noticed, all of that is describing holiness. There's that, there is that aspect of, of purification. You have set yourself apart why? 
It's so that you can love. Which means you can't love like God loves if you are not holy like God is holy. Being holy actually frees you to love. Which is why true love, in, in, the, in the gospel sense, doesn't exist outside of God. That's why you can say that if, if, no, if someone, all right, we're gonna, I'm going to jump there. Because first, it's in First John, let's see if it's pulled up. John says this, seems, it seems to be he says this over and over throughout the book of First John. And he's basically saying, if you haven't been born of God, then you have not love. If you have not love, you haven't been born of God. If you're not loving, it hasn't happened. If you think you're loving, you're not, <laughs> if you're not born of God. And so, he says it this way in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And actually, I'm going to jump down. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But in uh, chapter 4, he says, Beloved, look at this, this same connection. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So when we, when we describe the, the holiness of God, he has a holy love, and that is the kind of love that we are to imitate. And when we sanctify ourselves, set ourselves aside, purify ourselves for his purposes, then we are going to be a vessel that he can use. And the first thing he's going to tell us to do, once we've purified ourselves, is to love each other. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This passage finishes in an interesting way. I'm going to continue in verse 23. So love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. So he's, he's also connecting. Peter's also connecting it to this idea again, going back. You've been born again. And he's going to describe literally the sperm. All right. Uh, I got your attention. Uh, not of perishable, the, the Greek word is sperma. Okay. So they're, they're nice in their translations. But he's talking about this seed. You have been born not of a perishable seed, sperm, but of an imperishable seed. Okay. So he really is drawing this analogy. And he's saying, look, your first conception was physical. And like everything physical, he's going to go on to say, it's going to die. All flesh is like grass. All its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word that was preached to you, the good news that was preached to you. So he's saying, something has been planted in you that will never die. Something that's immortal. And in the same way, John in his epistle, connects this. He says, I'm actually going to go back to, the, to chapter 2. He says, all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. He's making the same point. Everything else is going to fall away. Everything else is going to die. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And what's the will of God? that you love each other. And so, in a sense, when you love, you are feeding something that's eternal. 
you are feeding the immortal that lives in you, and it's going to grow. And everything else is going to die and go away. So if there's one thing that's worth doing, it's, it's loving each other. Sometimes we build just the totally wrong thing, and we think that it's going to last. I, I think of Thomas, my son, he's three. He's often building blocks, towers, and then he's just, every time, he's just utterly just dismayed <laughs> when Eden, our one-year-old, comes and just knocks it down, right? And it's like he didn't see that coming. <laughs> but so often, we're doing that with our lives. We're building something that's ultimately just going to, it's just going to wash away, right? Like, your knowledge of, you know, your, your deep knowledge of football players is, is going gonna, is gonna to wash away, right? There's nothing wrong with it, but what are you building? And that could just describe so many things. Sorry, I picked on whoever that is in this room. <laughs> but uh, but are, you, are you building something that's actually eternal? Are you, are you investing it in the right place? So um, with that, I'm going to just actually invite you guys to, I have a couple of questions just for you guys to look at, um, get into groups. And from there, we'll have about five minutes, and then we'll sing our last song, all right? So here's the questions. Um, what's an area of your life that God has already completely changed to be more holy? Can you, can you see something in your life? You're like, yeah, I'm not being conformed to that former desire. Praise God. That's different. What's an area of your life that you haven't thought of as needing to be holy? Maybe you haven't thought about the, you know, the amount of time you sleep as something that needs to be sanctified. What's an area of your life that a lack of holiness is leading to a lack of love? I could point to a bunch with my family, right? Where we're at, my impurity, my lack of holiness is leading to me, me being unable to love those that are around me. So, go ahead and gr- break up into groups and then, yeah, five-ish minutes, five to seven minutes. Um, we'll, we'll sing our last song.